What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. Today, I have a must listen to show. This should be our highest downloaded show of all time. Um, maybe uh, other than the one that he did during COVID, but uh, I brought Bruce Norris on today. If you don't know Bruce Norris, he's the owner of the Norris Group, absolutely incredible investor, um, been investing for over 40 years, 40 years, and has done over 6,500 transactions. So averaging more than 150 transactions a year. You have to listen to the show. He's called the crash in California. He's called the double your money when the when the real estate market was going to come back from the crash in uh, after 08 and 09. And just an incredible strategist. And today we talk all about the market, where it's going, what the future looks like. And you cannot miss this as an investor. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. It was really incredible. And he's going to be speaking at Flip Hacking Live. So if you don't already have your ticket, go get go to fliphackinglive.com, grab your ticket. Do not miss that event. Do not miss the opportunity to see Bruce Norris in person in San Diego. Enjoy the show. My name is Bill Allen, and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called Seven Figure Flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet. But we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are Seven Figure Flipping, and this podcast is our playbook. All right, everybody. I'm really excited about today's show. And today I have one of the guests who's going to be speaking at Flip Hacking Live this year, October 12th, 13th, and 14th. So if you don't have your tickets, make sure you get them. And after this conversation, I'm pretty certain that you're going to grab a ticket just to hear my guest today speak. So uh, today I have Bruce Norris on the show. Um, I'm really excited to talk to him. We've done one podcast together before in the past. And it was right during COVID, right when COVID hit. And if you guys, we'll link it in the show notes. But if you guys don't remember, we talked about all the things that Bruce thought was going to happen during those, the slowdown in real estate. Everybody was freaking out. People stopped buying houses. And all of his advice was spot on. And I'm really excited to have him back on because it's probably in a time right now where you guys are wondering uh, what's next in the real estate market, what's happening. Interest rates have, have gone up, obviously. We had that couple months like uh, towards the the a fall and winter and even a little bit into the spring of last year where we guys, we saw the market really tighten up and, and uh, our inventory kind of sat for a while and stuff like that. So really interested and excited to talk to him today and really excited to have him at Flip Hacking Live. He's never spoke at our big event before and it's really incredible being back in San Diego and having him. So uh, Bruce, welcome to the show. Really excited to talk to you today. Maybe you can give everybody a quick uh, intro and background of, of who you are so they know for the, the, I don't know, five or six people that listen to the show that don't know who you are. <laughs> um, I got started in the business quite accidentally in 1980 when interest rates were 17%. I worked for a company for three months and decided that I didn't like how they did business and went independent ever, ever since. Uh, we, we really had never tallied up our transactions. Uh, I think we, we usually, if I spoke, said 2,500 just for fun a couple of weeks ago, because I was speaking at another event, we actually added them up and it was 6,500. So I've been wow. at it for, I've been at it for 40 years. And I guess if 6,500 is a number, that's an average of 150 plus a year for four decades. And that includes doing hard money loans for investors. And by the way, something I never intended to get involved with. So as you know, Bill, the industry evolves. You know, you, you think, okay, I'm just going to flip from my home. Then you start a business. And then you're doing training and that creates customers that are capable of borrowing. So you have a loan business and on and on, you know, it's just, it's interesting how the business works. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say me specifically um, running the mastermind and having a bunch of people that are doing more deals. I mean, if we had a hundred million dollars today that got wired into an account for seven figure flipping, it, it could get put on the street right now with all of our members. So there's no lack wow. of, of, of loans that can be done. So I found myself same thing, doing a lot of transactional funding, hard money loans, things like that for our members, clients, friends, people will just message me and call me up and need quick money. And, uh, and I tell them, I'll teach you all the tactics of go find it a lot cheaper than me. Um, because I want you guys to find it cheap as possible, but if you need it today, then I'm available. So you're exactly <laughs> right. It kind of, as you evolve in the business, it just opens up new doors and opportunities to, to figure out where you fit in the ecosystem. And that's kind of like my first question for you, I would say today is, is the as the market changes and evolves, I, I look at, I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today. 
it, there's an ecosystem in real estate with wholesalers, with flippers, with hard money lenders, with uh, retail buyers, and all of that dictates the opportunity in the market. So the first question I have for you is, where do you kind of see the market right now? And what are some of the biggest opportunities for people who are either just getting started or who might need to pivot their business a little bit? What's really interesting after being in this business for so long, um, you know, I, I know, let's say the last 50 years of charts, like the back of my hand. And so I use charts to make decisions. That's what I do. And that happened from, you know, years of buying directly from people at, at about 1990, there was a transition. I would get the phone calls from my mailers and my ads, but people were upside down and it was a different type of phone call. And I, I didn't know what to do until I found out that the REOs were where the deals were. And for the next six or seven years, it's all I bought was REOs and auction properties. And I realized, okay, that's a different skill set. That's a relationship building. So if you, if, if I have an REO agent, this guy had like 800 listings. If I'm his number one client and he calls me first when the deal happens, then I don't have to do a lot other than maybe get two or three more of those guys. When I went to an auction, I was the only person in the audience that would literally go see 400 houses, every house at the auction, because I knew no one else would. And I knew that if something fell through the crack, I would have be able to take advantage of it. So part of it, part of it's driven by charts. Now we just wrote a report called Uncharted Territory, <laughs> which means we've never been here, Bill, which is really interesting. So what what the math says to me when interest rates went up to seven percent, and we really reached our maximum multiple percentage of income. So seventy percent of our income as a group was designated to the payment in 2022. That historically never stays there. It can go down to 40 or 35 or 28. So here we are at about 65, usually the lag between peaks. So let's say you get to 70% in 22. When did you do that before? Um, 2006, that's a long time between peaks, which means that the mood of the buyer changes. So literally, Bill, we should have a 30 or 40% price hit that's being prevented for one reason. There's nothing for sale because everybody has a mortgage rate that, that's historically low. And by historically, I mean, I know that because Sean O'Toole and I, who owns Property Radar, spent three days in um, the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, looking at the, the history of interest rates in, in old books. So we literally realized, oh my God, this is historic. Well, what's happened is, is it's destroyed the commission structure, let's say of an entire realtor industry and lending industry, they're at 50% of volume. But the, but the equity position that should get crushed because of the math is doing fine. Why? Because there's not a lot for sale. And we, we all know that. Well, think about if you're if you have a mortgage that's two and a half or three percent, what are you gonna what are you gonna change that for a seven for? It would change the location you could buy, right? If you were living in a nice area, you might have to go to another city that's less nice to keep the same payment that you can afford. So you're not gonna do that. As a matter of fact, you probably made the mindset, you know what, I'm just staying. I'm good. The other thing is we have such a low payment on that that let's say your job changes. I got to move to someplace else. You might have a positive cash flow rental for the first time ever. And you also have a huge equity position because prices exploded so much so quick that while you were refining and not pulling out cash, your value just cranked. So one of the things that we know, I like an investor, you and I look for spread, right? We have to have a margin. Well, the margin is sitting there for the next who knows how many years. And it's the difference between the mortgage rate and the mortgage rate that's in place. So there's a there's a term called subject to. So you get good at subject to, you'll be a very rich person. You take over those loans at two and a half or 3%, go long, pay those off with positive cash flow. That would be one heck of a niche. And by the way, there was a guy that was a realtor in Riverside who that was his niche in in the 90s you know how many transactions he did 1300 wow <laughs> 1300 subject to transactions now he didn't buy them 
he facilitated them. That same agent that was the REO agent I was telling you about, he was the facilitator of tech getting the buyer to go along with a subject to sale. So that's so, that's one heck of a niche. For sure. Yeah, great. And, and what I love about the transition here is we have a speaker that exact same day that you're speaking, talking about teaching everybody exactly how to do creative finance transactions like sub two or owner carries. Um, because the challenge that we see even in sub two now is these people have so much equity right. that taking over the house sub two is not just them signing it over like it was maybe it's five, six years ago. When I when I was doing some a bunch of sub two deals and I was flipping them or holding them as rentals, there wasn't a big enough equity spread. So And a lot of times they were behind or delinquent. So I could right. just take over and catch them up like, on payments. Exactly, so, yeah. So now we got to figure out how to, you know, you're bringing still 20 to 25% down along with the, the mortgage rate. So now how do you raise the capital or how do you have the conversation with the seller that they keep their equity in place and get payments on their equity as well? Right. Or they trade it for something else or, yeah, you, you can, the key is, can I get that on my side of the table, that two and a half percent mortgage? There's a good chance you're not going to get to see that again. For sure. I completely agree with that. Um, and, and I love the fact that we're, you know, you're going to be coming in and have and, and giving a presentation and then we're going to teach them how to do it. And, and what I love about our event specifically is it's not like we'll give you half of how to do it, like the documents, the strategy, exactly how to do it, walk you through it. There's no um, here's half of it and pay for the rest. It's you got a ticket. If you show up, you're going to get the strategy of, of how to do it. And it's not it's not extremely complicated. I don't think a sub two transaction is complicated. Like you said, it's a relationship that you have to figure out how to have that conversation with the seller. That's right. You, you have to get the person across the table to trust you. That's what it exactly. amounts to. Yep. So what do you see happening? Uh, we just had a, uh, the Fed just met and, and, and didn't increase uh, rates at all. What do you see happening um, in the market for, I mean, you, you've, you've been instrumental in, in previous market crashes, uh, comebacks of markets, uh, really, and, and really data-driven decision-making, which I love. It's my favorite thing to talk about and do. Um, what do you kind of see as you know, short-term and longer-term for, for these investors? Is it is it really the fact that, that to watch the inventory? Like, what are you really watching to see? Um, well, okay. So again, the history of it, I know pretty well. So to think about 1980, I'll give you... I always like to have somebody, if I'm talking to an audience, make a list of the things that you think causes price damage to real estate. So let's go over, okay, probably how many months of inventory in supply would be one of those things that made the cut, okay? So in 1980, you know how many months of inventory was in the MLS? 22 no. months. 22 wow. months. How, how many months of condos? 30. If unemployment makes the category, it was 10%. Um, trends. Okay. Now think about 2008. We had eight to nine months of inventory, not 22. We had interest rates that were like six. How many, how much price, how, how much did prices go down in 1980? Zero. Zero. With 22 months of inventory, 10% unemployment is crazy. Um, interest rates at 17 and no price damage. So when I looked at that history, I said, okay, well, wow, that's, that's a head scratcher, but that's why I like to know 50 years of history because it's rhymed, it's rhymed a few times. So I'm looking at this and say, what, what was the dominant driver of the price de price uh, decline? So in, in 90 to 96, we had about a 10% price decline that was very gradual. It picked up a little steam as, as what happened foreclosures picked up. In 1996, foreclosures represented 40% of the volume, four in 10. In 2008, nine and 10, it represented 70%. And in 1980, it represented 25%. So to have price damage, you have to have inventory that controls the value of everything else. In, in 1980, you didn't have it. It was just me and you with stuff for sale at crazy interest rates. But those loans were able to get taken over by and large. There was subject to deals that could be had by the common person. The financing was still in place for that. So, you know, so I think 
okay, as I'm trying to look forward. And so I'm doing the math. How does this payment, how does this payment survive? 7% mortgage rate and an 800 plus median price is way high still on the percentage of income. And we don't stay there, but we're staying there because there's so little for sale and there's not the dominant, I've got to sell this today. Okay, what also happened to the REO inventory in say 2008 is they got the bright idea on how to make money and they would find the lender $1,000 a day per infraction for, you. so you had, I, I think, I, I wasn't, I'm not sure these guys weren't on commission, but I'll give them credit they weren't. But what they would do is they would inspect a vacant lender-owned house. You would get a notice that you have a green pool, broken window, overgrown lawn. You didn't fix that in the time frame they gave you. You got a you got a fine of a thousand dollars a day, till it grew to a hundred grand. We would buy houses that the lender actually had to write a check, to escape. Wow, that motivated the lender to say, "I got to get the heck out of here." Well, that that killed the value of everything. So as a flipper, I'm buying a house that two years ago was three sixty five. I'm buying it for sixty five grand. I put twenty grand in it. Put it up for sale for a hundred and a quarter, and the appraisal comes in at ninety-five. I'll have twenty-five offers at one twenty-five in one day, and the appraisal can't stand up because of what is what is sold is dominant is dominated by an REO. So going forward, that's what I have to think. Okay, what's the dominant inventory that's going to drive price down? I just don't see it. I don't see it because unemployment is probably not going to get out of control. And even if it did, you have a low interest rate loan that's so low that that's the asset that you are most treasuring. You will keep that and rent that property if you can. And you'll move back. I mean, who's to say you can't move back? See, that's we've never had to think about this stuff, but I think that's what's the, safe, the safety valve. Now, having said that, do I expect price escalation? No, I don't. So we're going to sit at this place for quite some time. Yeah, about nine months ago, maybe a year now, it was probably nine months ago, I, was, I thought that the Fed was going to keep raising rates until unemployment shot through the roof. Because I study the 80s a lot. I was looking at that recession, and it was interesting because the housing prices, they, they, didn't, they didn't go down, they just stopped going up. Like you were talking about, That's they were right. going up and up and up and up. And and the lowest I saw was like flat. It was like zero, like you mentioned. And right. and then it went back up again at, during a, a right. pretty big recession with very high interest rates. So I saw all the same stuff that was going on a, a, along with obviously like some of this gas and oil stuff that was happening too. And so I, I was studying that to try to say, what what is the Fed going to do? Because everybody thought they were just going to raise rates to, to sink the prices and drive foreclosures and things like that. But like you said, there's no, they have there's so much equity in the marketplace. And I thought they were gonna keep raising rates until unemployment started really hitting. That's what I was watching for. I was watching the unemployment numbers and okay. this didn't happen. So so let them raise rates more. It makes it makes everybody stickier in their house. Yeah. The only do only thing you're doing is killing an industry of commissions. So you're in the, the real estate industry has 50% unemployment. That's basically how you can look at that. They're yep. they're making 50% less revenue. They still have jobs, but they're sitting there looking at the wall. We were called to a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the, the president of Fannie Mae about 18 months ago. And the discussion was, you've got to let these interest rates go forward to the next buyer, or you are going to have exactly what we have. You are going to devastate an industry that can't get a commission check. So, you know, I don't think they could figure out how to do that. But so that's in place. You know, your your industry that's suffering is the people that get commissions on loans and on transactions. But as far as the owner occupant, what's really interesting is let's now let's go forward and say, let's say we have a a five and three quarter percent interest rate um a year from now. Does that motivate the seller to sell or the guy that's been on the sideline as a buyer to buy? Yeah, the buyer. Yeah. 
So you're not going to induce the two and a half guy to list his property because he still has a rate that's less than half. But you are going to have people get off the sideline that can now qualify. It's not seven or seven and a half. It's under six. They will become motivated buyers, oddly enough. So what does that do? Does that start driving the price of the houses up now? Low inventory, motivated buyers. They're willing to pay more. Potentially, yeah, it's it's. I'd say it's going to have a minimal impact on price, just because I know the math historically. We're still at say sixty five percent as a group. There's no history of that staying in place. This is this is literally uncharted territory. How long can we stay in a euphoric state? Well, it depends. What the people that are buying have that mindset. I, we have stuff for sale all the time. I mean, I just got text something. So we are we are specking some nice homes in uh, Florida. And a year ago, two years ago, we were at 715 on this one particular house. We did a lot of homework as to what we should build in Florida. We, we took apart every comp to see where the spread was, okay? So if you're looking at water, even if it doesn't go anywhere, that's a big deal. It has a third car garage. It's a big deal, but it has a pool with an enclosure. It's a big deal. So all of our houses have that. So there's a spread. So last year and the year before, at the peak of the market, 715 was the number. And this is the this is the text I just got. So we have one that just sold. Appraisal's good for uh, sale at 710. So we have dropped five grand despite interest rates having gone up by four and a half percent in Florida. That's, yeah, which hits so, which hits affordability massively, right? So one percent increase, eleven percent adjustment in affordability. So that's forty percent change in yeah, basically yeah, the it's, house it's, that they could afford. That's what, that's what that other ratio does for you too. You, when you see historical, so we changed the name of that chart. So it's the percentage of median in, income that goes to the payment. Okay, if you change that to a human factor called a moodometer it calculates the mood of the participant. And that is very telling because, see, I, I like that. It's the greatest cheat sheet in the world because in 2006, we were at say 65%. That's the highest we'd ever been until now when we got to 70 in 2022. 65% was nuts. Now at 65%, if you had something for sale in 2006, you didn't even have to fix it, right? It was crazy. Yep. Just like in 2021, crazy. Okay, now go to 2008 and nine. Prices have gone down by 60 some percent in California. And we had to bonus the buyer eight grand to buy one. Okay, so that chart, we went from 65 to 28% of your incomes required. Why didn't they want it? Because it, that chart shows that you're fearful. Yep. That's why I like this chart. So whenever it's on the bottom and you can't stand real estate, that's when I have to get over my fear and say, I'll take all I can. A, that's a great skill to have. And by yep. the way, it's not bad to have the other side. So in 2005, you know, we're working on the report called the California crash. I make my decision. Okay, this is going to tank. And uh, I exit 100 properties that I have. If I don't do that, I'm screwed like everybody else, man. So timing yep. to me is the most important things there is. And you know what the interesting piece of that, though, is is if you did that in 2005, I would guess that you exited some not at the top, right? You're, you're selling properties Correct. before. You're not trying to time the peak or the trough. You're just trying to make a decision in the right uh, ebb or flow of the, of the tide. I want I want to sell when you really want it with, with a partner that wants it too. <laughs> That's, That's what I right. want. But but to be honest with you, in 2006, it was where the other peak was in its past as far as affordability, 17% affordability. And then the next year it went to 12. Well, we'd never seen 12% affordability. So I thought, wow, maybe, maybe that's a wrong proof, if you will. Okay. And by the way, we got the 17% affordability in 2022. And that's the bottom it hit. But we get to 12 in 2007. 
And I'm going, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong about affordability. So I interview a lender in front of an audience. And I I thought it was going to be like, like a half hour interview. It was a one question interview. I asked stated income loans. Where does the stated income number come from? In front of hundreds of people, she says, oh, we just make it up. And I, I absorbed that for like 20 seconds. And it, I'm, my brain is just going. It's like, I can't believe you just said that. So you have no concern. You, com you commit fraud on every loan and you announce it to an audience. That's the industry. Okay, no wonder we're at 12%. And no wonder this is going to get worse than a California crash. So the next <laughs> the next title was Category 5 with a, with a tornado <laughs> on the cover. Because I'm just like, this is going to end very badly. And there you go. So sometimes you are late uh, or you're early getting out because nonsense is going on in the marketplace, right? That can happen. And so what's interesting right now is, again, we should have a pretty big price decline because you get back to a, mo a mood of either 40 or 35 or something in that range and you do the calculation, that's a big price hit. The problem is there's no motivated inventory and there's more demand sitting on the sidelines. So you look at demographics. So you have this, you know, these guys didn't have kids like I did at 17. They didn't have them at 27. They had them at 35. And so, okay, they're now being adults. Well, they want some place to live. And, you know, that's just, that's going to go on for a long time. You know, you, you end up wanting to own something. And so, but I think a lot less people will own just because of the payment, <coughs> that's pretty tough. You know, if you're, if you're as a group at 60%, that takes a lot of your budget. Not that you're getting, you know, that includes all the people that buy it with all cash and all that. So that's just a, a number, but historically it does dictate, it does tell you where you are in a cycle. So you're being able to support that high number because there's more buyers than sellers basically. And the sellers are just people not not lenders that can dictate on a on a wholesale price and dominate the market with inventory it's just not going to happen yeah and just if you're listening to catch you up and make sure we're on the same page the number that bruce keeps talking about is basically the payment compared to your income so the percentage of which your mortgage rate your, your mortgage payment is first your income so if, if it's 50 percent, then half of what you're making is going towards your house Versus, right. and if you're at 60 or 70%, then more than half of the money that you're making is going towards your house, which is the number. And you're, that's where you're creating that moodometer, right? That you're talking about. Right. Bruce? And what's really interesting and telling is that you always have much easier time selling when it's over 50. Because then you have competition. People have to have it. That's what drives it to nonsense. 60 and 70 is if you have something for sale, We last time we had something for sale in that market, say in 2022, we had 11 cash offers in, you know, two hours on a brand new house. We had a 12th offer that was a VA who kept on raising his price and became the winner. So the cash buyers were 11. They were fighting a VA buyer with nothing down and got to a price that was completely crazy. We, we built this house thinking it was four and a quarter. We listed it at five and a quarter. We got 577 for it. And then three of those cash buyers said, can we have one at that price on ones that you're working on? Wow. Yeah. That's 2022 for you, you know? That's now, right. You take that, you take that all the way to 2009. And that's why this mood thing is so important. That 365 house in Marino Valley is listed at 65 grand. I buy it at 65 grand. Why, why can I do that? Because no one else bid on it. Because the mood of the market was fearful. Well, that's why charts are a big help. I look at charts and go, okay, well, wait a minute. Are they ever going to build another house in Marino Valley? Because if they are, it ain't going to be for 65 grand. That's the lot cost and the permit. So I would have to make a decision that not another house is ever going to get built in Marino Valley for me to be afraid of that. But that's very rational. And most people at that point are not. And that's what I, that's why I love charts. I, in Grand Junction, Colorado, I showed up in 84 and bought all the fourplexes in Grand Junction that were REOs. And I had to go through the same journey there. These were 200 grand fourplexes that gradually worked its way down 
I made an offer for 40 grand for all of them. And uh, they laughed and yeah, and they countered it. And then I said, I'm, sta I'm staying. And then about seven months later, I, I got that offer accepted. When I'm signing the offer, I'm sitting in a chair in this pile of paper, literally, you know, shoulder high with all the files I'm buying, right? And it dawns on me, the only reason I'm buying it is I'm literally the only person in the country that thinks this is smart. <laughs> that's a that's a moment that'll humble you. You're like, what am I not seeing, man? Yep. Because <laughs> I asked the same thing. Are they ever going to build another fourplex in Grand Junction? And uh, the one thing you have to be careful of, you're going to have a national audience, is that you have to leave your California brain at home when you go somewhere else. You have to realize that other people in other places make different decisions. So one of the things that I thought we would do would be rent them up. They were 50% vacant. And I thought, well, we're going to rent these up. It'll be wonderful. Well, two years later, I was 50% vacant. Hmm. And, and I had hired a great property manager. We did a miracle to stay 50% vacant. But I thought, gosh, you're, you're getting a college, you know, like, eight miles away, stuff like that. And the lady looked at me when I said, this, you expect people to ride a bike yeah. <laughs> to your fourplex in the snow? Uh, crap, didn't think of that. <laughs> so anyway, you do have to be careful. But I, that's why I love charts, because I can do the opposite. You can have my stuff when you're euphoric, and I can have your stuff when you're ter terribly fearful. And do it both with very, you know, with calmness, which is cool. Well, that's what I've admired about you since like learning about you, studying of the things that you've done, reading your reports is that you're fine. You, you've been the pioneer multiple times. And I think a lot of people are waiting. They wait and wait and wait until everybody else is there. Just, uh, I mean, Warren Buffett's quote of like, you can tell who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. These kind of things is like, it, you, yeah. you've really got to like run in when other people are running out and like run out when other people are like. The, towards the end of them running in, right? Like exactly like you're talking about. Um, what it, well, you know, I want to say, to, let me ahead. just say something. When, when you write a report, so we've written reports in both directions pretty blatantly saying on the cover what's going to happen. So we're going to double in price. Well, for that to be value valuable, you have to say that in advance of that occurrence, right? But the right. mood of the market is fearful. When you're writing something that's going to double, it's just, it's, they're so happy you showed up, but they don't believe a word of it. When you write California crash and you're in the you're at the end of a spectacular boom where everything they've touched has turned to gold. I had to get three people to cut my hair in 2006 because that where, where's Mary? Oh, she's flipping houses. I thought, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so that's what you know you have to look at and say, okay, this is a number-driven decision. It's not emotional. But people defend what's working. So I reason I brought that up. You speak in front of a club in 06 or a group of realtors and say, you know what? This is life-changing stuff. You, This is gonna be devastating. And I don't use that word crash lightly. And boy, that was received with just frustration because of where they were, everything was working so well. And well, very shortly it was not, including builders. I, I got a chance to debate. John Burns invited me to debate with one of the top builder analysts in the country from U UBS, I think it was. And that was an interesting night because the builders had lots at risk. But what was the information they had? Everything they had for sale in 2006 had a line behind it waiting to overbid. And I'm telling them this is going to crash? Well, yeah, but you know what? Wouldn't it be good to have some notice in advance of that? Because the second it happens, it's too late for you. You've just bought land at retail or more. And you have all this inventory that's not going to sell. So, you know, you need to know in advance this is going to occur. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, met, you mentioned the new construction because that's kind of where I wanted to go. You guys are building some houses and we talk about inventory. Um, I'm interested to know what that market is like and like why are builders not just building a ton more houses right now to help with the inventory? Well, I think a lot of the advisors that give them advice, we're, we're really telling them these are very smart people that you can expect a 20 or 25% price hit. And then all of a sudden that didn't occur. Now, what has occurred is I don't know that the sales are up dramatically, but the percentage of their participation has doubled. So you don't have anything for sale that's existing. You land on a new one. So the percentage of, of the new homes nationally is now over 30% instead of 15 historically what it was so the demand 
uh, is there, but the the existing product is not. So it's shifting over to the new homes. And I think the builders are still cautious, you know, which is good. I don't know that they're going to be specking tons of houses, which will help the supply kind of maintain. So they have a bigger percentage of the market, but I don't know that their volume has created, uh, certainly hasn't gone up the same percentage. They just are really happy they're selling stuff. Yeah, we, we look at new starts as well to kind of see what's what's happening in the marketplace. And is there going to be inventory? Because I agree with you. I think the inventory is really the number that, that we've been watching even since July of last year. I think July of last year, we had a meeting in Chicago as a mastermind group and community. And we have members from all over the country. And they came like kind of freaking out. Like, where's the market going to be? What's happening? Um, there's a lot of talk of crash coming. And that, that was it. The conversation just went to, let's watch the, the inventory. And we did see kind of like a, an interesting pause a little bit, like a lot of the stuff. But everybody was, was, was running their numbers like the market was going to continue to go up. And they had uh, longer hold times. They were going over budget. They were going over timeline on their rehabs, on their renovation projects. And they were expecting the market to kind of bail them out. And so those are the people that kind of got stuck a little bit at that time where they had to offload inventory, cut, take some losses and kind of retool their business to be more efficient, yeah. where I think the efficient business will win here. And so we watch new starts and and I agree, I'm kind of waiting for them to to go up. I'm waiting for these builders who are, who are looking, you know, nine months to a year and a half down the road that their inventory is going to be selling and high interest rates and everybody talking about a crash. Uh, a community of news and media and all this stuff talking about real estate is dangerous. Uh, interest rates are high. Nobody's going to buy their home. They're just still seem to be a little cautious. Um, are you guys well, cautious? I mean, like, what are you guys doing on your new construction? If you could build more, would you build a ton more? Yeah, we're we're in escrow with, uh, I think, seven lots and headed to another 30 or 35. So, yeah, we're good. Uh, and part of it is, uh, you know, I have the advantage of Florida having migration that's off yeah. the charts. So, you know, in the last 12 months, I think it was 504,000 people exchanged their license for Florida license. Wow. 504,000 people need to get into a door, <laughs> right? A new door, whether it's a new house or an existing house. Yep. I like, I like those odds. So, um, we're again, we're very scientific in how we what we build. So when we this is probably three or plus years ago, the, what's interesting about when you move to another state and you're spoiled lot rotten because I've done business with the same people for thirty years, and you come here, well, you have no contacts. It's like, oh man, I got to build a team. So what I did is i I asked the team to show up here. And so the builder that I've been building in California, I said, how about you could think of moving to Florida? And so that's that's what they ended up doing. And she's a realtor. And I said, I'm going to pay you guys for a few months. Let's get to the bottom of where the margin of profit increases. And it was in those things I mentioned. If you're looking at water, if you have a third car garage, it's not that just your price increases, your margin doubles. That's a big deal. Your price, your price goes up, but your margin doubles because people will pay a lot of money for those things. It's important to know that. So it means that in a downturn, we have a huge cushion. If something changes, I still have what they want and they can have it for less. But so far that has not happened. I mean, we're in escrow at 710 instead of 715. Yep. And, and for those of you listening, what, what Bruce is talking about right now is the price of the house can go down, which he will make less profit, but still make money. So that's the difference. It's basically looking at your business. I always, whenever I'm coaching somebody in there, like looking across their entire portfolio of the number of renovation projects they have, I look at how leveraged they are and what their equity position is if they take all those houses that they're working on right now and they have to liquidate them. So if I had to sell off everything, what is what's the what percent what kind of equity do I have in my business? And what percentage is that of debt? Because they're probably got a lot of debt, whether it's hard money or private money. And then how much equity could I create like right now? And then look and look at their business on a regular basis. And that's what we did over the last like nine months with some people. And you start to see their, their equity position is only five or 10 or 15%, which is a really dangerous place to be. Because what that means yeah. is if the market changes by 10 or 15%, 
they're break even. Now, if the market changes by 20% or their timeline goes up, their budget goes up, all the numbers that are on their sheet become irrelevant. They're, they're actually having to write a check to sell some of these houses. And so that's what you want to look at. And so what Bruce is talking about is even in a single house, if he has double the margin because the cost of the construction is the same, maybe the lot costs a little bit more because you can see water, those kind of things. But he looks at the margin as double. That gives him more equity to play with to say if the market does come down, I'm still making money. I'm just making as much money as I was before versus right. I'm making money or I'm breaking even. And I think that's where a lot of us land is we think everything's going to go right. Anytime I write goals or we look at, we analyze something, I look at risk and I just assume 50 to 60% of the stuff is going to go wrong. And when that happens, then, then, and you still have a profit, now it's easy to make a decision. And, and like Bruce has been talking about this whole time we've been talking is data does not lie. The numbers don't lie. Emotions do. So all the emotional decision maker and people that are making these emotional decisions of it'll be fine. I'll stop cutting hair and start flipping houses uh, at the wrong time. That's an emotional decision that's not backed with numbers and data at all. So I love your approach. See, it's really great. See, what's interesting about that, too, is that when you go back 50 years, then you're, you're confronted with things that you that, you know, are damaging, like having too much inventory. And then you have 22 months of inventory and no price damage in 1980 when your interest rates are 17 and you're 10% unemployment. So you have to take that experience and go, okay, well, why did that happen? How could you have this price damage? And so it's over the last 50 years uh, of history and you know, built, writing these reports, the, the, uh, probably the best thing about the reports that we've written is it's written with a very pure motive of how to protect Bruce Norris's dough. <laughs> so, you know, that's I don't have a, a I don't have a bent that's saying okay I've got to write this report so we sell a bunch of reports and it says this or that I just want to know the truth and so you know about what's going to go and, and that's why we love uh, I, I love being connected with you I love the fact that you're coming to Flip Hacking Live because a lot of people are asking these questions and and you've been willing to not only like protect your dough right but then also share the information with many other people and I think that's what's sure. been incredible. You've helped so many people. Every time I bring up your name, people are like, man, I'm so thankful that I was connected to Bruce. I was reading his reports. I was going to his meetups. I was spending time with him in California because he saved me a ton of money. And just sometimes you can help people make a lot of money or you can save them from losing a lot of money. And both of those you've well, done in the past, which is incredible. And that's really important on the downside when you when you lose almost everything you have. Oh my gosh. I met with a guy, I spoke at a club in LA and was when I had already written the crash, but it hadn't happened yet. And he just came up to me, says, man, you just freaked me out. He says, uh, can I have a meeting with you? He had 62 properties that created a minus $20,000 a month income. Minus 20 grand. Yep. He had $3 million of equity. And the way he paid the 20 grand is talking other people to do it. He'd get a list like he had. So he got paid commission for selling the homes. And which he had done. And I said, to be honest with you, I think you have nine months to leave this uh, business a multimillionaire. I said, if you don't sell it, you'll have zero. And he just didn't do it. And he just lost everything. Mm. So that's the hard part, you know, is that you just, if it hasn't happened yet, I mean, I had people calling up crying after it started to happen. What do I do? It's like one of them, very famous guy. I was like, it's too late, man. I tried to tell you. I went to his company. Um, I had a meeting with all their people. I interviewed his economist on a radio show. Going, God, get get you're gonna write off into the sunset a hero, man. And it, it just didn't do it. But I understand because you're at the if you're locked in at the emotion of the moment, it's very hard to make decisions at extremes. So when it's extremely terrible, it's hard to be a buyer if you buy into that. And it's hard to be a seller when everything you touch, you know, you get it, you give yourself a lot of credit sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm marvelous. You know, I buy this thing and it goes up and I sell it in one minute. <laughs> yeah. <Yep>. You know, <laughs> got to be careful and, of that one. And we've been seeing that for the past, you know, three or four years, even as simple as it is back when, when I, and I've only been in the business for the last 10 years. And, but I remember what it was like paying all seller concessions, having houses sit on the market for two or three months. Um, after I fixed them up and listed them, falling out of escrow twice, you know, because there's some repairs that these people want or put, you know, 
they they back out because they don't get their loan. Things like things that are happening right now are very much a lot of the stuff that that I was seeing in when I was doing 30, 40 houses a year. And, and so we just forget. It's so easy for us to forget. We're like creatures of short-term habit, not like long-term data-driven decisions. And and it's really hard. Like you said, it's really hard when everybody else is telling you to get out, to get in. And then when everybody's saying everything's fine um, and, and information moves so much faster now than it did in the eighties too. So that was what I was looking at is, is the fact of how media and other people's uh, opinion on social media and all these things can change our decision if we're all very emotionally driven and we're pack animals. So how do you yeah, run with the, the right pack? In the last 12 months, they've all mostly overreacted and said, you're going to have a terrible crash. And, you know, hadn't occurred, very unlikely to. You know, the other thing that's really protected is a business. You know, the Norris Group is is a hard money lender. Um, very few hard money lenders pulled the plug on lending in 2006 and seven. We gave all of the people's money back that were involved in hard money and just said, stay on the sideline, you know, because uh, there'll be a safer day. We had, uh, at the time Wall Street was coming in, the guy heard me speak, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very motivated when I get irritated. I don't know about you, but I, I write that stuff down. Actually, it, it helps me out. And um, this guy was listening to me speak and he came up and he said, I really respect what you do. And I, I really feel sorry for you. I said, why is that? And he said, well, it's just obvious the Norris Group won't, won't be able to survive with the Wall Street competitors coming in the market. I said, really? And I said, I, I reached for a business card. I gave it to him. I said, here's my phone number. Call me in five years. I guarantee you I will pick up the phone. <laughs> and I'm guessing he didn't call. He was out of business. That's right. Uh, yep. He was out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see that. Charts, charts are important because, well, first of all, when you're in the hard money loan business, you're trusted with other people's money. You know, and that's the hard part about Sometimes when you create funds, let's say, you know, you just have a pile of money sitting there that's inactive, you find a reason to activate it. When you do what we did, you know, we did individual loans. We, we, when we got paid off, plus we were aggressive because we knew that the market could change and it would be very, uh, a straight line down. Let's say you're a borrower of ours and you've never missed a payment in your entire life. And all of a sudden you're 30 days late on one. I called you. I didn't call you to chew you out. I said, okay, do you still have a profit motive on this house? He said, no, I'm just trying to get the heck out of it. Let's auction it off with my buddy and I'll take half the hit. Let's move it. So we took little hits on very few houses, helping guys get to the sideline because we understood what was about to happen. And so we could sit there very uh, cash. You know, we had a track of homes that we had built. I dragged, I dragged my feet, 93 houses we built in 2004. And I dragged my feet to start that at the perfect time and get rid of those. And uh, so we had gotten, you know what those homes sold for at the peak? We started at 200, it got to 280. This is a 1200 square foot house in Rosamond, which is eight miles after Lancaster and eight miles after Rosamond is nothing. This is in the middle of nowhere. And you know who Tony Alvarez is? Yeah. Okay. Tony Alvarez was buying those houses two years later for 40 grand. Wow. 280 to 40 grand. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, hey, we've got to wrap up. And I, I would say I could I could talk to you for hours and hours. And I'm really excited to share the stage with you in a couple of weeks. So if you guys are listening to this, then this is just a small taste of what Bruce is going to bring to San Diego. Um, you can go to fliphackinglive.com and grab your tickets, October 12th, 13th, and 14th. Bruce, is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to share with, with my audience, uh, what they can, some place that they can go, something they can download? Um, I know you have your uh, I Survive Real Estate event coming up. Maybe you want to talk about that. Is there anything that you want to share with them? Yeah. At, at the end of October, we have... Um... The I Survive Real Estate event. Uh, I'm I'm selling the Norris Group, so I'm retiring at the end of the year. I'll do some speaking, by the way. So if you need me again, I, I would do that. Um, I have a lot of respect for you. That's why I took the gig, just so you know. You know, I'm I'm really I'm I'm so thankful, like incredibly thankful for that. And um, and I the, the a relationship means more to me than anything. So I appreciate that. Yeah, me too. Um, so at the I Survive event on the panel. There's a good one guy that's joined again, this guy named David Kittle. David Kittle was is one of the um, 
like the main main people in the lending world for decades. And um, having him on the panel be very, uh, very illuminating about um, what the lenders are thinking. And if there's some, you know, if there's risk for some of those guys going out of business and causing systemic events. So I'm very excited about that. We have uh, chief economist of Fannie Mae, Doug Duncan. So who's who in our world is on that panel? And it's a charity event. So the Norris Group pays for everybody's dinner and, and or, or the expenses. You guys, it's like $200 a plate. And that goes to charity every year. So we've raised about a million two or so for Make-A-Wish and uh, Jude. So, yeah, so it's a, and it, by the way, everybody's dressed up. We started this event in 09 at the height of the foreclosure. So we have this panel of the top people in the real estate industry. I mean, every like the president of the mortgage bankers, the president of the appraisal institute. And we have 450 people in tuxes and formals for the first time. And I knew who was in the audience, but I asked, okay, if you're if anybody here that's an investor, please stand up. Well, 450 people stood up. And I looked at the panel. I said, I just wanted you to know what a real investor looked like. <laughs> because we were taking the heat. We were taking the heat for all the nonsense that went on. And it wasn't us. We were the solution. So I wanted them. And that visual stuck. David Kittle, he loves this event. You know, that's what's cool. And if he if he resigned and went uh, to another place, he would tell his uh, his uh, the guy that took his place, you got to go to this event. You got to nice. go to this event. So we had maintained the top people in the industry for for a long time. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. So head to that if you can. Yeah, we'll put a for everybody listening. We'll put a link in the show notes to where you can get a ticket. It's in California, so I know we have a lot of California listeners. So. It'd be easy for you guys to attend, but we'll put a link in the description and in the in the email that we send out uh, to everyone too. So um, again, last call uh, it's just coming up. Once you guys listen to the show, it'll just be a couple weeks away. So October 12th, 13th, and 14th, uh, our event. And then Bruce got an amazing uh, charity event at the end of October too, there in California. So um, Bruce, thanks right. for being here with me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to to hear you speak uh, on our stage for the first time in just a couple of weeks and uh, get to spend a little bit more time with you and, and in person instead of uh, virtually. How many, how many people is, are going to be there? Uh, we'll probably have uh, 1,000. I think we are probably <laughs> right around 800 or so right now. We'll probably have, um, we're ahead of the ticket sales that we had in the past. So we'll probably have 1,000, maybe a little more there this year. That'll be cool. Yeah, it's a pretty big event. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, it, <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, live events are a bit of a challenge. Uh, the hardest thing that I've ever sold is a live event ticket. Surprisingly, I'm sure you know, um, getting people to to travel, to show up, to do all this, especially three days. Um, but it's one of my favorite things to do. So I'm really excited about it. And I, I we're going to have some great, great people there. I've been watching the people that yeah. are buying tickets and um, we're going to have kids in the audience. Uh, we just launched uh, something with the Bring a Friend. And then um, I don't know if my audience knows this, but if they listen to this podcast, they will know. Um, we are also bringing in a virtual component of it. Uh, I made a decision while I was in Fiji last week to uh, to provide it virtually. So we're going to do a hybrid event. So we might have, we'll probably have a thousand people in person and likely have a thousand or 2000 people virtually. Wow. So we're doing a, a hybrid event where my friend Mike Simmons will be running the entire event um, virtually as a virtual MC. So the virtual audience will have a totally different experience. Um, in transition and during breaks and things like that than the live event audience. So um, we might be able to bring some of the speakers backstage to the virtual audience to have them do a little Q&A or, or a little bonus material for them. So really cool stuff that we're we're doing for the first time here at this event. So that's great. All right, Bill, looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming, Bruce. I really appreciate it. And everybody listening, we'll see you at uh, Flip Packing Live. Thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you on the next show. Bye.